0: So we'll be in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. And let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, that it is powerful, that it does impact our lives, and and that it, it will be fruitful when it falls on a heart that is prepared. And I pray our hearts would be prepared, Lord, just surrendered and humbled before you, knowing that we need you for life, that you are our life, that you are our Father. And our good Father has sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world and to provide atonement for our sins so we could be forgiven and live with you forever. And I I pray, Lord, you would minister your word to our hearts today, that you would fill me and all the hearers with your spirit, that we would hear your voice and walk in obedience with great gladness and joy in Jesus' name. Amen. The other day I was baking. I love to bake. Uh, I added too much flour by mistake, and i didn 't have the ingredients to double the recipe, so I unfortunately had to cut my losses and throw it out and it 's annoying because I hate to waste good ingredients because of carelessness and waste in so many cases it 's preventable it 's unnecessary, and we take great pains to to conserve and to make sure that we're not being wasteful with our time or resources. I think of a a seamstress or a tailor. They're going to lay out the pattern on the fabric to maximize the cutting area so they don't waste unnecessary fabrics and materials because they're valuable. We can invest in relationships or we can squander opportunities. We can save time and we can also waste time. And It's possible to gain money and wealth and notoriety and friends. We can gain the whole world and lose our own souls. And there's nothing worse than a wasted life. God's given us this life to invest for his glory, to be spent in praising him and bringing him honor. And there's nothing worse than wasting that. I think of Joseph he wisely stored grain because he knew during, the, during a season of great harvest, he stored grain because he knew that a famine was coming, and it's wise to weigh our actions today with consideration of the future, not just our future on earth, but our eternal future with God in heaven. This week, many students in New South Wales finished up trial exams, and I expect there are some who really, some who really look forward to receiving their marks because they want to see how well they did. There's a, there are others who who are not looking forward to that because the test wasn't what they expected. They didn't get the necessary preparation in or they didn't feel good about their performance. The Bible teaches that all people will someday give account of ourselves to God. We will be judged for our time here on earth, being stewards of the life that God has given us. And the irony about this judgment is there will be many people who think they have fared extremely well to find they have failed the test. It's, it's a pass-fail test, and the only the ones who pass are those who place their faith in Jesus. They will be rewarded for their good works, but there will be people who assume they have done well and been a good steward of the things God's given, but will be disappointed and will, be, will regret the waste of their life. Um, Those who try to save their lives, Jesus said, will lose them. Those who lose their lives for Christ's sake will preserve them. And it's never a waste to live your life for God, to give ourselves completely to him, because he is the true, he, he and his kingdom, those are the true riches that we get through the gospel. So starting in Luke 16, verse 1. Jesus speaking. He also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. This chapter begins with, He also said to his disciples. And as students of the word, we have to realize, Oh, this is following on from something Jesus was already talking about. Um, continuing the thought. And if this chapter follows the parable of the sower, which also included waste as a theme because the younger son who demanded his inheritance, he wasted his goods. It says that in Luke 15, 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. He demanded his inheritance. He wasted his possessions He squandered the opportunity to make wise, profitable decisions in business. And in this parable, the unjust steward, we see a similar thing. This uh, rich man had a steward who was responsible to manage his household and his goods. He he managed his estate. He didn't own the land, but he was responsible to get the most out of it, to make uh, wise investments, to get the land suitable for farming or trading to use the wool in a profitable enterprise, make sure the food was prepared daily for his master and his household. Like a CEO of a corporation, he managed, managed the day-to-day affairs of the business in the best interest of the organization. So he, his job was to keep the, the family or the household profitable and sustainable. Word came to the, the rich man that this steward was wasting his wealth and the owner calls a meeting with him. All the evidence was there. And he says, you're going to be sacked because of what you did. You need, you need to answer for what uh, all these, you know, this waste. Settle accounts with me. Turn in your company donkey. You're going to have to give me your keys. Settle those outstanding accounts because you can't be steward anymore. Verse 3, then the steward said within himself, what shall I do? for my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig, I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. This steward, he's self-serving. He had given little thought to the careful management of the master's house for the master's benefit, but now that he, his security and his financial future is in doubt, He's suddenly very concerned. The writing's on the wall. His role from steward, it was going to be taken from him in a matter of time. He saw himself as above menial labor. He was too proud to beg, though not too uh, ashamed to steal or to embezzle from his employer. More pressing than losing his job was the importance of landing on his feet with future employment. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't repent. He doesn't try to deny what had happened. He knew it. His eyes were squarely on his future and what he could do to benefit himself moving forward. He wanted to ensure his own profit and security. This man did what many do in a cutthroat, dog-eat-dog world. He looked out for himself. Verse 5, so he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. With an eye to secure future employment elsewhere, the steward called his master's debtors one by one. Perhaps he had been slack to demand payment to settle these accounts, or perhaps the numbers were a bit high and they weren't able to pay at all. And, but in this, he sensed an opportunity for himself. After some company golf or a, a barbecue dinner, he asked them, how much do you owe my master? As if he doesn't know. And then he offered them these sizable discounts. He says, oh, you owe a hundred? Okay, quickly, write 50. It was a win, win, win situation. They're getting a big discount. His master is able to recover some of his losses and he just made himself a friend who might be wanting to hire a servant at some point where he could manage their estate and benefit. If you went to a shop to buy a fridge and you were talking with the manager and the manager says, you know, that fridge, it's $3,000. The best I can do for you is $2,500 and walks away. And then an associate comes up and says, hey, you know what, just for you, I'll sell it to you for $1,500, have it shipped to your house. I really need the sale. You would be like, right on. This is the guy to go to. This is, I have a friend at this shop now. And you would start directing people his way. He may not make the make, make the most profit margin, but the volume would speak for itself. So that's the, the tack this steward took is he gave people great discounts, uh, made himself a friend who would hopefully be his next boss. Verse eight says, so the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. The master, of the steward, he was no dummy. He knew what he was doing and he commended him that he, not that he offered a discount of goods that he wanted for himself, but that he used all the resources at his disposal For his own future best interest. He applauded the steward's management of resources, and he would have still had a job if he had put that kind of effort into his master's business rather than seeking to profit himself. Jesus explained the sons of this world, those who walk according to the ways of the world, which is to be self centered and self serving, they are more shrewd than the sons of light. To be shrewd, it's to be sly, crafty, or astute. The one who always says, what's in it for me, is likely to work an angle for their own personal benefit more than the one who says, how can I serve you, right? The hidden motives of our hearts, they play out in real life. But God knows the heart. That's the thing to understand. I remember working in an office years ago, and uh, every month there would be a cake for uh, people's birthday, to celebrate their birthday that month. And we had one employee who was always like, I don't know how he did it, but he was always first in line. And then he would scamper throughout the whole building and just be announcing cake, birthday cake, and then get people from the distant office and then join them and have a second piece. And someone said, you know why he does that? He just does that so he can have extra pieces of cake. And I was like, huh, I never thought about that. I mean, sometimes I didn't even have the cake but this guy, he had figured out a way where he could justify having multiple slices of cake and other people maybe having none. Uh, so he was in it for himself. He was, fe- he was thinking about his stomach. The mastery committed the unjust steward for his sly business deals. It does not mean that this is a model for the sons of light to follow. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 16, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Sheep by themselves in the midst of wolves have no chance for survival. But when we have the good shepherd guiding and directing and providing and protecting us, we can, the sheep can survive and thrive. This Greek word that conducts, it talks about the conduct of, of the wisdom of the children of the world. That's the same word that's used for, uh, in, the, in the previous passage where it says they're more shrewd, um, that he was wise in what he did. Where Jesus says the wisdom of the children of the world. Now, how are snakes wise? Think about them. They don't, they don't bark or bleat to announce their presence without feet or legs, they're able to quietly slide and glide upon the ground. They can go into holes. They can swim in water. They make their ways into homes and paddocks, and they can survive in extreme conditions. You can go out to the desert, and there can be a snake surviving there. During a visit to Tasmania, I saw my first brown and tiger snakes, which was really cool. The only problem was I only got about six or seven meters away. I was walking really slow with my camera and they wanted no part of me. They were very timid. They, they, they weren't looking for a fight. And that's the wisdom that the children of God are to show. We're not looking for a fight. We'll be endowed with wisdom to endure persecution and difficult situations while remaining gentle as doves. Doves are a bird I've never felt... Uh, Threatened by, they're not going to swoop you to protect their territory. They're not going to shock you with a, a very loud call, uh, call, like a, I don't know, a cockatoo that could wake you up in bed. It's going to be a, a quiet call. And uh, this word gentle, it carries the idea of innocent, unmixed, pure. Serpents, they're avoided by men because of their venom and fangs, but the disciples of Christ are to be harmless. In the Song of Psalms, the beloved refers to his uh, wife as his fair one, his, his dove he finds lovely, just his pure, uh, clean wife. And may our lives adorn the gospel of Christ that we would be like this, wise, survivors, uh, relying upon him. We are those sheep among the wolves, and yet we have a good shepherd who's going to protect us, he's going to provide for us. He's not just wanting to use our meat for his food or our wool for his money, but that we would love him and he could lavish his love upon us. We follow his example. Continuing in Luke 16, verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Verse 9, it's best understood by referring back to the parable Jesus just told of the unjust steward who made friends for himself so that he could secure his financial future. He would be received into one of their houses. The mammon, that's money, resources of this life. We've been made stewards of God by them, of them, and someday the things that you have, your money, the your time, your resources, they're going to pass out of your control. They're going to go to someone else. The word fail there, it can refer to that stuff in our disposal, but it really it's our lives when we fail, when our lives are over, when we are called to give an account for this life that we've led here on earth. And knowing that we will someday be stripped of all that we possess, all of the abilities we have, we ought to show the same foresight for the eternal future that this steward did for his uh, next job and his retirement. Jesus has provided an everlasting home in the heavens for those who love him, and as stewards of things that will pass away, like money, time, homes, job, family, friends, we ought to leverage them for eternal rewards with eternity in mind, knowing that the decisions we make today, they have an impact on our eternal future. We don't earn a place in heaven by giving to a church or Christian ministry, by volunteering, by laboring to share the gospel. But when we gladly do so as unto the Lord, we will be rewarded for it. God has rewards, a full reward for all those who are his. Jesus lays down a principle in verse 10. He says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. A steward was called to be faithful, to have integrity, to be on time, to be on task, to act in the best interests of his master. Jesus says, by extension, the steward that won't steal a pencil or a rack of staples from his employer, he's the one who could be trusted to manage millions. Students who cheat on an unmarked exam or a homework test will continue to be unjust on their job applications or when they land a job as a CEO that the character is the same. It will show itself. King Solomon, he wrote this in Proverbs 27, Though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle, along with crushed grain, yet his foolishness will not depart from him. It's an interesting picture, right? You're crushing that fool. It's like he, he cannot be separated from his nature, who he is that God is not in his thoughts. God in his future is not in his consideration when he's talking about financial decisions. We hope in vain people will rise to the occasion. We give them more responsibility. Okay, they haven't really been faithful in this small job, but if they have a big job where something's really required of them, they're gonna rise to it. Jesus says that's not the case. You might as well imagine a hungry tiger will lose his instinct to hunt if you put a hundred lambs in his enclosure, right? That doesn't make any sense at all. You're just giving him more opportunity to to, uh, exercise his instinct. Let's not fool ourselves that our conduct in trivial matters is trivial because it exposes our true character. Jesus turned from the temporal then to the spiritual, from the temporary to the eternal. If we've not been wise to faithfully manage the money that God's given us, which is a little thing in God's eyes, millions are nothing to him. If we have not managed it wisely with God in mind, ensuring that our households are provided for, to invest in God's kingdom, to give to those in need, who will commit to our trust the true riches, the enduring riches of the kingdom of God? We understand that a chronic thief should not be given the job as a treasurer, nor should a drug addict be licensed to write scripts. Jesus says the one who's unfaithful in temporal things that will someday fail, God will not entrust the true riches of the kingdom to because those are spiritual and enduring. The Bible tells us we are to desire spiritual gifts. Have you considered that unfaithfulness in little things may prevent you from receiving from God the gifts that He has for you. The love of money, that's unfaithfulness to God. It keeps us from walking in faith required to receive the peace of God that passes understanding. That's beyond price. Have you considered that unfaithfulness to God by grumbling and complaining and bitterness, it keeps you from spiritual gifts and eternal rewards? Jesus says, if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Again, we understand this in a practical sense. If I allowed my son to borrow my phone and he used it to shim a table, that's a bit unsteady. Or he was at the beach with his friends and he was using it as a shovel to dig the sand. Or he, uh, you know, he's using it to fish coins out of a fountain. I'm like, you know, I'm not going to let you borrow my phone anymore. It's obvious you don't value it. You're not even using it for what it's intended for. I wouldn't gift him a phone he's just going to destroy. It's obvious he doesn't recognize the value. And in the same way, if we're not acting in the best interest of our master with money, with temporal things, why should he give us the true riches of the kingdom of God? Will he commit a spiritual thing beyond price to us when we can't manage even a temporal thing? The money God's given us, it's often a test to see if we're going to idolize it, if we're going to look to it for security, if we're, or we're going to trust him who gave us our wealth and the ability to gain wealth. Again, a million dollars, very little thing compared to God and the light of eternity. If we become possessive of money, well, then the money has us in control. The true riches, it's not money, it's not gold, silver, stock, bonds, properties, superannuation. James wrote in uh, James 2.5, he says, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? You can be rich in net worth, But we are called to be rich in faith, and that's trusting God with our wealth, that we would give ourselves to him and be content with what he's given. Continuing on in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The Greek word for servant, it's a household servant who would live 24-7 under the roof of his master. And it implies it's done with affection and devotion, like he's choosing to be there. He's not forced to. No household servant could serve two masters. You couldn't have a master in Jerusalem and a master in Bethlehem and serve them breakfast at the same time. Now, I, lo- I know that we would love to be in multiple places at once, but we can't. We, all- we think we can serve two masters at once, but we can't. He says, no man can serve two masters. A servant needs to choose which master they love more and commit fully to him, to serve him, because to try to serve too is to only serve himself like this unjust steward. Jesus says you cannot serve God in mammon. Everything we have is a gift from God, and our whole lives have been purchased, and therefore we're to honor him with the things that we have and not make money our idol. Again, it is not a sin to have money, it is a sin to be covetous and greedy for more. The question is, how are you using your hundreds, your thousands, your millions, your billions in service and obedience to God? Are we investing investing to secure an empire for ourselves here on earth that's passing away or looking towards an eternal habitation? Proverbs 23, four and five, it says, do not overwork to be rich because of your own understanding cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle towards heaven. The younger son of the man, the prodigal son, he learned this when everything was lost. And as God's stewards, we're to use money to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven that cannot be stolen or lost, for where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. We work for money. We're told to make our money work for us. It's even better when our money is put to work in seeking to honor God as we're giving according to faith in Him. Who is our money serving? It's a good question. A hard question, a personal question for all of us to answer. Luke sixteen, fourteen, and 15. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus talking about stewardship and money. He hit a nerve with the Pharisees because they loved money. They viewed wealth as a sign of God's favor, like God rewarding them for their service unto him, uh, neglecting the fact that there were many righteous people who did not have the kind of possessions and wealth they did. And it says they derided him. They had scorn. They had extreme contempt for Jesus. It's like they felt superior for him and said, this poor carpenter from Nazareth, who is he? What does he know about money? Who is he to tell us how we should use our money? Pretty rich for a poor man from Nazareth to tell people who has no money to tell people who have money to give it for the kingdom of God. Jesus taught in these these passages, money can be wasted in prodigal living. It can also be wasted in using it for your own benefit. That's what the unjust steward did. He wasted his master's goods because he was seeking to gain for himself. This is the key. Jesus said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. The fact is, we, like those Pharisees, we can justify ourselves doing, we can justify, however your money is being used, you can justify why you do what you do and what we think is best. And it's good to know the love of money, it obscures selfish motives. It blinds us to the fact that we are selfish or greedy. These were people, these Pharisees who were angry, they were ones who tithed of their herbs. So they tithed, they gave, but at the same time, they allowed people to cease supporting their parents financially because if they said something is Corban, That meant it was dedicated to the temple and thus freed from the responsibility to support their parents in their old age. And the priests and Pharisees were profiting from this practice. They were oppressing the widows and putting on them a uh, heavy-handed, telling them they needed to give, but they were not giving the more they received. It's possible we can make many scriptures of no effect Because of what our financial advisors say, and because of a bleak economic outlook, or even a recession. So I find it very interesting that God would bring this passage at this time. God knew the hearts of those who were lovers of money. He says, for what is highly esteemed among men, it's an abomination in the sight of God. Now what's highly esteemed by men? I would say being set for life, right? Wouldn't that be like something everyone's working for? You work so that you can be set for life. And we're not talking about heaven. We're talking about that you can have enough money to live comfortably, to travel, to have a, a maybe even a second home, to be able to uh, not worry about money. Living off interest, being free to do whatever you want, that is what people value and admire but my friends, this is a mirage. This is a lie. This is an abomination before God that money could provide the security we need for a better future. It's only found in God. It doesn't matter if you have 20 properties or you have great wealth. The fact is we're not to look to those things for, to feel comfort and peace and security, which is passing away. God is enduring. He's the one who provides everything we need. It's an abomination to make things that God's given us an idol and neglect the investment in the eternal things, the kingdom of God. Because it profits a man nothing to gain the whole world and lose his own soul. From a heavily vantage point, it's a waste for us to acquire more and more and give less. Again, money, not an abomination in itself, nor is owning a comfortable home, or saving money, or spending money, but this abomination, that's something detestable, that's something idolatrous, is when the things we highly esteem, they have our affections, and those things are not God. We're not looking to Him. We're looking for ourselves and our own benefit, when God has given us all things richly to enjoy. For an example of what men highly esteem, we can turn to Mark chapter 12, Starting in verse 38, Jesus speaking, it says, Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best place at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Jesus warned people of scribes, those doctors of the law, those lawyers. They enjoyed showing off their fine designer apparel. They loved attention, loved recognition, wanted the best for themselves, best positions, best roles. Jesus looked beyond their respectable uh, image that they presented and exposed that their wealth came from oppressing widows how they prayed long in public, but they didn't pray in private, that they were always working in angle to benefit themselves like that unjust steward rather than his master, their master, which was God. For their greed and selfishness, they were condemned and their hypocrisy only added to their judgment. Continuing on in Mark 12, 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Jesus sits opposite the uh, treasury box in the temple. And he's seeing how people threw money into the treasury. And that's very thought-provoking, where it's like how they put it in. Some put it in discreetly. Some, it was obvious, they were putting in a large sum. And people would come to Jerusalem with the intent to give. They would contribute according to the law and according to their free will, as God had prospered them. The observation is made that not everyone paid the same. There were some that gave little, and the rich gave much. This poor widow came. She threw in two mites or lepton, which were the smallest Jewish coins made of bronze. The pair of these coins, it amounted to one 64th of a day's wage. Not much. So you have the rich that are putting in a lot and you have this, which is a tiny amount, very small. Then Jesus, he calls his disciples over and he says, that poor widow, she put in more than all those who have given. And by comparison, they must have been thinking, what do you mean? We saw how much they put in. Those rich people put in a ton of money and she just put in two coins. Jesus says they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now we can easily be caught up in the idea, in the amount that we give and think, oh, I need to give more to find favor with God. Well, this woman only put in one of a day's wage, very far from one tenth, And yet she gave the most because she entrusted her life to God who would supply all her needs. They saw someone giving in faith who believed God. And it's a great illustration for us commitment. She gave God all that she had. The scribes and Pharisees, if they had opened the box and they had just seen those two coins, they'd said, what? they may have questioned her devotion or her commitment. I mean, oh, don't you love God giving this much? I mean, this is ridiculous. But Jesus looked through that. He saw her heart and he sees our heart and how we give. If we're giving joyfully or if we're giving begrudgingly, if we're justifying ourselves why we give or don't or how much, the Lord knows your heart, and we're called to use the things of this life for his benefit, not our own. Will we entrust ourselves to him? It's really about giving our all to God. So it goes beyond money. In closing, I would like to share 1 Peter 4, 7 through 10. It's a good application for us. It says, But at the end of all things, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Our stewardship of earthly things will one day come to an end. Therefore, we ought to pray, right? He's given us breath. We can use that breath to praise him, to pray to him. Pray that his will would be done on earth that is is in heaven. And if that's your prayer, well, then you should be seeking to do God's will in your life, with your money, with your time, with your family, or apart from your family. We ought to be generous and loving others. Just like this widow, she gave all to the Lord. We are to give our all in service to one another. He's like, you've received a gift from God. Use that gift to minister to others as a good steward of the manifold grace of God, considering the needs of others as more important than yourself. There's no room for but what about me there? Because God, He is our good shepherd. He is our Father. He's providing a place for us forever to be with Him. Verse 11, it explains to what end. If anyone speaks, it says, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How gracious God is to give us the ability to glorify him, even with things like money and spiritual gifts, which are passing away. May we not fall short of the full reward that God has for all who love him. So let's give God our all. Let's seek to to labor for his benefit with an eye on eternity, knowing that he is our true riches. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the richness of the gospel and the richness of your grace. Lord, the manifold grace that you have shown us. So multifaceted, so necessary for life. Thank you that we have great security, all security and provision and protection in you. Lord, turn our hearts away from the love of money and greed and discontent and to put money to work for your kingdom, to use the gifts you've given us to minister to others. Teach us how to do this, Lord, that we could walk by faith as this widow did, as Jesus did, who was not wealthy with things of this world, but so rich beyond measure with the true riches. Lord, I thank you that we are unworthy of you and yet you have reached out to us with kindness and forgiveness and acceptance. We love you, Lord, and uh, may we make known the riches of the gospel and your goodness to all. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Have a great day.